Well, we'll see how we go. Um, if my sermon starts feeling a bit too heavy, maybe you could kind of tune into the Sunday school lesson happening at the other end of the room. Or, um, or maybe if you just get bored with my sermon, you, can, you might get more out of that. But um, good to be all together uh, in this room. Well, these, um, these last few chapters of Genesis are kind of like the, the last pieces in the puzzle being put into place, um, everything being uh, set and ready for the next book of the Bible, the Exodus and the events that take place there. Um, some of those things might seem a bit like trivial historical information to us, but for the Israelites in the time of the Exodus... It was important to hear because it actually explains some of the specifics of their situation. For an Israelite in that generation who came out of Egypt, who grew up there, thinking, why are we living here in this part of Egypt? Uh, why is Egypt the way it is at the moment? Uh, this story of Joseph tells them uh, what God was doing to prepare them for that time. We're told here why it was that the Israelites were largely living in the area of Goshen, uh, there, right there in the Nile Delta, uh, one of the most fertile areas of that entire region. Uh, as we heard, it was the best of the land of Egypt. Um, centuries later, when they were made slaves, uh, they built two great cities in that area, one of the cities was the city of Ramses. So that's why um, Moses uses the word Ramses. You hear he used Ramses to refer to Goshen because later in the, in the history, the area was known as Ramses because of the city that the Israelites built there. Uh, some Egyptian art from that period, um, you've got that in your newsletter too, depicts groups of Semitic people, or as the Egyptians called them, Asiatic people, uh, who were migrating into Egypt around that time, the time of this famine. Um, they're identified by their striped robes, interestingly. Um, you know, we often see images of Joseph in a striped robe, and maybe the people from that area became known as Joseph's people, and so they were robed in that way, possibly, but also their, uh, their skin colour. The people on the top are the Semitic people, the people underneath are the Egyptians, so different skin colour. Um, the men have beards, unlike the Egyptian men, and they also have distinctive hairstyles. So, um, so a bit of, little bit of historical um, evidence about this migration, not just of Joseph and his family, but many other people from Canaan would have been flowing into Egypt around that time. Joseph is very shrewd as his family come to Egypt. Um, he knows that for whatever reason, shepherds are an abomination to Egyptians. We're not told why, it was just, just a fact. But he also knew that Pharaoh would see an economic advantage in having shepherds migrating into his land of Egypt. Um, and having those people actually settle permanently in the land. So the Israelites are given their own region to settle in. Um, and uh, as I said, it, uh, 
Archaeologists have uncovered evidence like this artwork of people migrating to the area, but they've also discovered uh, in this region uh, a palace that, based on its artwork, uh, housed a Semitic person of high stature, a ruler. The palace compound contains 12 tombs and the most prominent tomb amongst those tombs, which has a little mini pyramid shape on it, uh, contains the remains of a statue, which some people believe is, could actually be a statue of, jo- of uh, Joseph, because um, it's very similar to this, this artwork here. The other interesting thing is that that tomb was discovered empty. Uh, may have been from grave robbers. Most graves uncovered by archaeologists in that region now are, have been robbed by tomb, grave robbers. Um, but there's something about the way that the, the bones of the occupant of this, this tomb have been removed. Um, the tomb hasn't just been smashed like normally happens. It's like the tomb was respectfully opened and the bones removed. So maybe, we don't know for sure, maybe that was because when Moses and the, the Israelites left, they took Joseph's bones with them as he'd requested. Now, those things don't prove to us the Bible's true. Um, even if they did prove that the, that the Bible's account was historically accurate, it still also doesn't prove to us that it's God's word. But it's kind of good to know that, isn't it? That as archaeologists uncover things from that era, what they uncover actually affirms and supports the Bible rather than contradicts it. We're also told about Egypt's taxation system that Joseph set up. Uh, We're told that it stands to this day, in other words, at the time of the Exodus. So the system Joseph set up had been in place for 400 years by the time this was written. Uh, This is Joseph's wise and fair management of this situation, these seven years of plenty followed by seven years of drought. Um, And we see how he, he... worked not just to deal with the people of Egypt to provide their needs, but also to keep the peace. These people are coming saying, we're without food, there's potential revolution maybe here, and he just acts very wisely to deal with the situation. And we see him set up a system which, I guess you could say ironically, may have been used as a foundation for future pharaohs to actually subject the Israelites to slavery. Uh, We're told, as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. And then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. Sounds a bit like slavery, doesn't it? And our hackles might go up straight away when we hear slavery in the Bible. And many people attack and criticise Christianity today because they say, well, the Bible condones slavery. How could you believe such a, a book? Or if you Christians have now changed your minds on slavery based on what the Bible says, then why can't you change your minds on other things such as sexuality or other moral issues? Well, it's important for us to see that what's, what the Bible talks about as slavery 
and what's being spoken of here wasn't chattel slavery, where people were stolen against their will and forced into a situation where they had no rights, they were, they were owned by their master, they had no future. That kind of practice was explicitly prohibited in the Old Testament law. The kind of slavery that you see the Bible allow in ancient Israel was more like indentured labour, which still today might sound not very nice to us. But the idea was a person in abject poverty who had absolutely nothing or who had an unpayable debt could work for someone in exchange for their basic provisions or to pay off the debt that they owed. It was in some ways the ancient equivalent of work for the dole. It was, a, it was a social welfare system. People were given a sense of youth, usefulness and value to society because they could get up in the morning and go to work and be provided for. It was also then an opportunity for the rich to not just give a handout but to actually contribute in a really helpful way to those who were less advantaged than them. Now, what Joseph sets up in Egypt is not exactly like that, but it's, it's a similar kind of principle. It's what we could call tenant farmers of the state. So, their land and livestock were bought by Pharaoh. Notice, not stolen. So, if, if your livestock is bought, that means you've received something in return. And the people became essentially public servants. Didn't mean, actually, didn't actually mean that they lost their animals or they lost their land, but simply they paid, they paid a proportion of what they produced in tax. Because the farming land belonged to Pharaoh, they actually had now a guarantee that their land would be looked after, that they would be provided for. Pharaoh owned his this land, he's not going to neglect it now, he's going to look after it and we now all have jobs. We're working for Pharaoh to farm his land and to look after his livestock. And then there's the tax. There's records that suggest that some of the ancient kingdoms um, in the world of this time imposed really heavy tax burdens on their people. In some cases... And even later on in Egypt, after the Israelites had left, people were taxed up to 75% of their income, whether that was money or produce or livestock. What does Joseph do? He caps the tax rate at 20%, one-fifth. So not only is that very generous compared to the rest of the ancient world, it's actually quite generous compared to the modern world. The average Australian today pays 24.6% income tax. Not to mention all the other tax we pay. You go to the supermarket, you're paying 10% and so on. In fact, Australia is actually quite low in our tax rate compared to many other countries in the world. So, Joseph has set up this fair and equitable system. It makes sure that the Egyptians are provided for in these remaining five years of the drought. 
And not only that, it then sets them up well for once the drought and famine has passed, they have this great system where Pharaoh gets the income he needs to then actually look after the kingdom and the people in it. The the point of recording all these details is that it shows the outworking of the covenant promises to Abraham's descendants that not only will they be blessed, but they in turn will be a blessing to the other nations. Joseph and his family's presence in Egypt was a blessing to Egypt. And it kind of sets the standard then for this ongoing pattern in the Bible. Because the Lord is with his people and blesses them, then he's also present and a blessing to the people amongst whom they live. Do you notice uh, Jacob is brought to Pharaoh? Jacob blesses Pharaoh. This little shepherd from the the back blocks of Canaan stands before one of the greatest, most powerful kings in the world at the time and he blesses Pharaoh. And did you hear that little comment that when they moved there, they, they, they were blessed and they were fruitful and they multiplied exceedingly. There's the creational mandate coming out. They were actually being richly blessed by God. Well, nearly a thousand years later, Jeremiah spoke to Jews who were in exile in Babylon. A similar kind of scenario. God's people, but living in a foreign land. Here's what he said to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, this message was given in response to a false prophecy that was uh, being sent out that the exiles were going to return to Israel within two years, a very short time. The Lord's plan was that they were going to spend 70 years in exile. So that only a, a tiny handful of that generation would ever see Jerusalem again. So how were they to live in a land that wasn't their home as they looked forward to a return to the land but that which was beyond the horizon of most of their lives? They were told, seek the welfare of the city. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. See, Joseph and his family living in Egypt were a model for these Jews as they were living in Babylon. Let's go another thousand years into the, into the future from the time of the exile, the early centuries of Christianity. Christians were living out the same principle. There was a Roman emperor called Julian II. He was two emperors after Constantine who officially declared Rome Christian a little bit dubious about what he understood by Christian. But Julius wanted Rome to revert back to paganism. 
specifically a Greek kind of spiritual form of paganism. But the problem he'd faced was the explosive growth of Christianity right across the empire. Not by enforced conversion, but simply as people shared the gospel with their neighbours and there's this grassroots movement spread as Christians just went out living and sharing the gospel. Julian wrote a letter to one of the Greek priests that he was you know, trying to encourage this going back to Greek paganism and he said, why do we think that this is sufficient and don't observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. For it's disgraceful when no Jew is a beggar and the impious Galileans support our poor in addition to their own. Everyone is able to see that our co-religionists are in want of aid from us. Galileans, the name that Julian gave to these Christians who were known throughout the empire for putting Jeremiah 29 into action. These Christians knew that this world wasn't their home. They lived in daily expectation of the Lord Jesus returning to replace Rome and all human kingdoms with his own kingdom but they still sought the welfare of the people and the cities amongst whom they lived. They're not only putting Jeremiah 29 into practice, they're also putting 1 Peter 2 into practice. Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. As Christians we're called to be countercultural in terms of our love for one another, our love for our neighbour, but we're not called to be political revolutionaries and we're not called to speak or act as if somehow um, this nation belongs to us or should conform to what we think a Christian nation should look like. There's actually no such thing as a Christian nation. There are Christian people, people who are living as strangers and exiles among the nations ambassadors of Christ's kingdom but it's not a kingdom of this world. People, Christians who are seeking by God's grace to live out the commands to love your neighbour as yourself and even love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Honour the emperor. The emperor at the time was killing Christians, throwing Christians to the lions, burning them alive. It was becoming illegal in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. Peter says, honour the emperor, this brutal tyrant who's over you because he's there because God wants him to be there. Now occasionally there may be a Christian or two who is put into a Joseph-like position. 
a place of opportunity and influence in our society. And that person will testify to the goodness and the the grace of God, not by trying to Christianise the nation, but just acting with integrity, seeking the welfare of the nation. Even if the culture and the religious beliefs of the nation are contrary or opposed to their own. When you're out in your workplace, in your community, in your neighbourhood, just think, okay, I'll just seek the welfare of the city in which I live. That's the basis on which the New Testament calls us to pray for our leaders, for our government, even if the government are a wicked tyrant. So if you're not happy with our present government or any future government, well, start by giving thanks to God for them. It's very hard to be angry with a person if you pray for them. Thank God that they're not the megalomaniacs, the tyrants, the dictators that we've seen in the past or that we see in other parts of the world. And then continue, pray for their welfare, pray for their success in governing wisely. Even if the government are our enemies, we're still called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. All of this is because we we are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we're still under the promises of the Lord's covenant with Abraham. If you are Christ's, that's not the verse I was wanting. Uh, Galatians, that's a good verse anyway, isn't it? Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the blessing that God promised to Abraham is also ours. We are in Christ. But then he goes on in verse 29 of Galatians, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What that means is we can still take hold of the promise that the Lord will bring blessing to the nation in which we live through his people, the church, through us. We should expect as Christians to be what Jesus described us as, salt and light, bringing the goodness to bear upon our neighbours. But we also need to see all this in perspective. The blessing that Egypt knew under the administration of Joseph was in a sense a side benefit of the main reason for the Lord having them there. It was that through Joseph all the sons of Israel would come to Egypt and the stage would be set, as I've said, for the, the defining event of the entire Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. Egypt was the place that the Lord had chosen to fulfil his promise to make them a great nation. That would happen over the next 400 years until the time came for the second part of the promise to take them into the land that he'd, he'd promised to them. I want to finish by just reminding us of some of the key themes that we've seen in Genesis so far. We're not quite finished with Genesis. We've got one more passage next week. Uh, but three, three key themes I want us to uh, remember as we've uh, been through this book. The first is the idea of covenant. 
Uh, we understand that Genesis, written by Moses, for the Israelites as they had come out of Egypt, they'd camped at Mount Sinai, they'd received the law, they'd heard all God's words about, I'm now entering into a covenant with you. They were somewhere between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land on their 40-year journey. So the biggest question would be, well, who is this Yahweh, this God who has rescued us from slavery? What does it mean that he has entered into a covenant relationship with us? What does it mean that we say that he is our God and he says, you are my people? And so to answer this question, to help the people understand the Lord's purpose in what he's doing, Moses would have taken stories that they would have already known that had been passed down generation after generation along with other truths that were known from other sources and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit put them together into the book that we now call Genesis. It was all about, it's the prequel. They're living in the events, they're saying what's the background to all that's happening to us and so he gives them the book of Genesis to explain all of that. So we've seen how covenant has been a recurring and prominent theme through the book. The creation story doesn't use the word covenant explicitly, but it's framed in covenantal language. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary, a tabernacle within creation. Humanity was given a priestly role of being God's image bearers. God gave blessing to them. That's a covenantal thing, blessing And he called them to be fruitful and multiply. The covenant says, and here's what I expect you to do as your part of the covenant. He gave them the Sabbath as a holy day to foreshadow the day when all of creation would know the the full rest and the freedom of God. All of those things are an outworking of a covenant relationship God has with all of creation. Then the first appearance of the word covenant was in the story of Noah. God established his covenant with Noah and he saved Noah and his family through the judgment of the flood. And then he puts the bow in the sky as a sign of this covenant that he has established with all of creation. Never again will there be a flood that will destroy life on the earth. The covenant with Noah really was just a a reaffirmation of what God had set up in creation. The word that's used there for making a covenant actually just means establish or make uh, firmer or more solid. God has this ongoing commitment to his creation and to humanity despite the sin and the evil and the depravity of the human race. And then we saw the covenant with Abraham, which again was really a reaffirmation of this eternal covenant. He reinforced it six times through Abraham's life. He reminded him of the promises. Each time he re-emphasised a different aspect of the promise. And then he reaffirms the same promises to Abraham's son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob. So when the Lord took the Israelites out of Egypt, he says, I'm just remaining true to what I promised to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The Israelites knew very clearly God is the promise-making God 
and he's the promise-keeping God. Another theme that goes through Genesis is the theme of the seed or the offspring of Eve. You saw back in 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is the devil, between the devil and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So a descendant of Eve will come, will destroy the work of the devil and will restore humanity and creation with it back to its original harmony and perfect design. That's why there's all these genealogies in Genesis. Tracing of the line from Adam down to Noah and then Noah down to Abraham. It's why the the matter of finding a, a wife or a husband and having children was so important to all these characters in the story. They knew the promise of Genesis 3.15. They knew that if it's not fulfilled in my generation, then it's going to be filled in a future generation, so I need to get married, I need to have children, so that that promise of the seed will be passed on. That's why people were so devastated when they couldn't have children. That's why Abraham and Sarah had to wrestle with God's promise when they were old and childless. They had to come and see that it was God's faithfulness, not their efforts that would make sure that promise was passed on. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had to come to terms with the fact that God's promise of the seed of Eve would be worked out in a way that would be different to how they expected. Not through their choice of a son, but through God's choice. It wasn't Ishmael, Abraham's oldest, it was Isaac. It wasn't Esau, it was Jacob, the second born. And it wasn't Joseph, the tenth born. It was actually all the brothers through whom the promise would come. This all points to the fact that salvation is by grace, worked out through God's sovereign choosing, electing work, not by our efforts, not by the flesh. And this promise of the seed then sets the scene for us who look back at these stories through the lens of Jesus. We see that the father who made this promise, Genesis 3.15, at the dawn of time, has kept it in Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That term, born of woman, that's a direct reference to Genesis 3.15. Born of woman, offspring of Eve, the first woman. So the Israelites knew themselves to be children of Abraham, the offspring promised to him, but they then looked forward to the time when from them would come this one, this one who is the seed. And then thirdly, we've seen a recurring theme of death and resurrection, foreshadowing the death and resurrection of Jesus through whom the Father will bring full and complete salvation. Just think of where we saw death and resurrection. We saw it with Adam and Eve. They experienced death when they disobey the Lord and listened to the devil's word. But as they 
go out of the garden, they're living with that promise, as we've just seen. One of their descendants will lift humanity back out of death and back into life. We saw how creation itself is subjected to futility and death because of the curse. But it's all in hope. In one day it will be liberated and it will be returned back to its Sabbath rest. Noah and his family symbolically died as they entered the ark, as they passed through the destruction of the flood and they came out the other side alive into a renewed, washed creation to start over again like a second Adam and Eve. Abraham and Sarah. We're told in Hebrews, Abraham and Sarah were as good as dead in their old age, in their infertility, until the Lord brought new life from Sarah's womb. Isaac. Isaac was as good as dead as his father Abraham laid him on the altar of sacrifice and as he raised the knife to kill him until the angel of the Lord intervened with a substitute ram to be killed in his place. So again, Hebrews tells us, Isaac, figuratively speaking, was brought back from the dead. Jacob, Jacob was cast out of his family. He was alone estranged from the Lord, wandering in the wilderness, as good as dead, until he's having the dream with his head on the rock and the Lord opens heaven and comes down to meet him. He restores his hope. He brings him back to be reconciled with his brother Esau and he reaffirms the promise. And most recently, Joseph. He descended into the hell and the death of Egyptian slavery and prison, only then to be exalted to the highest place from which he became the saviour of many people. Death and resurrection is the, the most prominent theme recurring, not just in Genesis, but actually through the whole of the Bible. Because death and resurrection is central to the Father's plan in bringing salvation to the world. He saves us not only through Jesus' death in our place for our sin, but in his resurrection for our justification. So in a way, all these stories through Genesis and through the Bible become not only images of Christ, but also images of our story. We too must die. We must die to our sin to our old sinful nature. We must have it put to death and done away with in order that we might have new life, new hope and a future relationship with God the Father through Jesus as we're in Christ. As I said, we're not quite finished with Genesis. We've got one more final section to look at where Jacob blesses his sons as he's on his deathbed. He will speak prophetically about the 12 tribes that will come out of these 12 sons and we'll, we'll zoom in on the tribe of Judah because it's uh, Jacob's word to his son Judah that speak of the king who will come from his tribe 
uh, who will be David's greatest son, uh, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise that you gave to Abraham and you also give to us that you will bless us and that you will make us a blessing to all nations. Father, we pray that you uh, might be at work in us, that we might be faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, not only here in Adelaide, but in Australia and to the ends of the earth. We pray especially for your church, for the many people who have been sent out uh, to the nations across this world who bring that gospel of salvation. We ask that we might be faithful in proclaiming that good news. We also rejoice and thank you for the promise you give us that uh, because we are uh, by faith in Christ, children of Abraham, uh, you will also use us to be a blessing to those around us. And we pray for ourselves and we commend ourselves to you in our various places, places of work and of study and of living and of all the the different ways in which we are um, strangers and exiles but living uh, in this country, this nation of Australia. We ask that you might work through us to be a blessing to those around us because of your goodness and your great love for them. And as that blessing happens, we ask that opportunities might open up for us to speak of you, the one who is good and kind and generous, uh, who is blessing people so that they might... uh, know who you are and they might turn to you and be saved and have hope and purpose for the future. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, finish with our last song, which in a way is uh, 